According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for all the truths that we have already heard and confessed and sung together this afternoon. Father, we thank you for more truth. As we open up your word, you confront us with truth and truth not just to show us who you are, but truth to change us. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray, we plead with you that by your spirit, you would change us, transform us. Give us rest where it is needed. Give us hope where it is faded. Give us strength where we are weak. That's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Where do we find hope? a world of hopelessness. Peter told us that for him, the hope to be found is to be found in the resurrection of Jesus. For Peter, the resurrection changes everything. I don't know whether you picked up on that. He called us to hold on to a living hope. The living hope that he, he calls us to hold on to is rooted and grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. For Peter, that is the foundation. That is the ground for, for all of his hope as he lives in a place of brokenness and contending with sin. For Peter, the rev- resurrection changes everything. And he is writing as someone who knows that to be true even in his own life. If you know the Bible, you'll know a little bit about Peter's story. So the Peter that we, we read here, the one who's writing to us, isn't the Peter that we first encounter in the Gospels. The Peter that we encounter in the Gospels is very different to this Peter. Like it's the same guy, but he's just living a different life. So when we first encounter Peter in the Gospels, he's called as one of Jesus' first disciples. He's a young man, a fisherman by trade, and, and he's arrogant. He's just full of pride. He thinks he knows best. He's a Jew of Jews. Like he's really proud of his Jewish um, heritage. He's uh, kind of loving where he's living in, in Galilee, this uh, kind of Jewish um, um, area. And, and he's proud of who he is. And he lives his life in these early days as a disciple who, who just oozes that arrogance. 
You see constantly in the Gospels, he's having these interchanges with Jesus and he's trying to prove Jesus wrong. Like it's madness. Jesus, who is God, is saying one thing and Peter's like, no, 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 you've got it wrong, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, you've got it wrong. I'm God, you've got it wrong. So the night before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus says to his disciples, who, who, do, they, who do they say that I am? And Peter, he gets one thing right, actually. He says, you are the Christ. And Jesus gives him a pat on the back and then Jesus goes on to explain, guys, listen, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to the I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to lay my life down for you. Peter jumps in and he's like, no, you're not. I'm going to lay my life down for you. Jesus is like, no, Peter, you don't get it. Even, even this night, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, I'm not. Of course not. I'm going to, I'm going to be the one at the front. I'm going to protect you. Don't you worry, Jesus. I'll, I'll make sure it's all all right. And that night, as they, they walk into the Mount of Olives, Jesus just says simply to his disciples, would you watch and pray with me? And Peter's probably there like thinking, yeah, I can do that. He falls asleep and then the soldiers come and, and Peter pulls out his pocket knife. Like there's a really funny thing in the Gospels. The Gospels tell us there are swords around. And for some reason, Peter pulls out the smallest knife and lunges at one of the soldiers for his ear. Like if you're going to take someone out, don't go for their ear. And he slices the ear off, puts on this show of arrogance and bravado. And Jesus is like, no, this isn't how it's going to happen. They arrest him, he goes. And where does Peter go? He runs off. Like a scared little boy. And in the next scene, we find him warming himself by a fire. As Jesus is taken to his trial. This is the great defender, Peter. The, the one who's going to protect Jesus. And he's there trying to keep himself warm. And a little girl comes up to Peter. And, and, and she's like, you know him, don't you? No, I, I, don't know who, I don't know who he is. And then another guy comes up and... You sound like you're from Galilee. You must know him. He's from, no, I didn't know that man at all. Another one comes up and he denies Jesus three times. The rooster crows and Peter realizes what he's done. And Luke, in a spine chilling account, tells us that in that moment, Jesus locks eyes with Peter. And Peter locks eyes with Jesus. And then the next thing, Peter's gone. He's not at the foot of the cross. He's not there defending Jesus' honor. He's gone, hiding with most of the other disciples. Peter, back then, is a picture of someone who hopes in himself, who finds strength in himself. What's fascinating is you get to the book of Acts, which is a historical account of how the early church grows, and we find a different Peter. Has anyone ever um, had a school reunion? I appreciate some of you are either still in school or look like you've only just left school. <laughs> but those of us who've had a school reunion, like I had one a couple of years ago, and I hadn't seen some of my friends for nearly 20 years. And when we were last together, like we were in our early teens and no interest in, in ladies, no facial hair. Like our time was spent just playing video games and, and we were kids back then. And then when we met each other a few years ago, it was like we were different people. One guy walks in in a suit, like we've, some of them have got beards, like we've, most of us are married and we've got kids, like we've changed. We're the same people, but we've changed, we've grown up. And that's what you find with Peter, as you get to the book of Acts, he's grown up. He's, he's living for something different. In the book of Acts, you see that Jesus ordains Peter as the one who's going to lead 
forth, this building of the church. And Peter stands up and gives the sermon of his life. It's not about him. It's all about Jesus. And he leads the church. He plants churches. And what you read through the book of Acts is he's a man who makes mistakes. Like he messes up royally sometimes. But he's challenged and he responds with humility. That's not the old Peter. And what is beautiful about this letter that we read now, the Peter who loved his Jewishness, the Peter who had a chip on his shoulder about anyone who wasn't a Jew coming to be part of of this new church. Like, Like he thought, yes, you can come in if you're not a Jew, but you've got to eat like us. You've got to dress like us. That was the Peter. That same Peter is writing this letter from Rome. Rome isn't the center of Jewishness. Rome is the center of non-Jewishness. And here is Peter in Rome, establishing the church among not his people, writing to churches who aren't Jewish, who are mixed Jewish and Gentiles. And a few months after this letter is received by the churches, history tells us that Peter is crucified. They say he's crucified upside down. Because he didn't count himself worthy of, of, of dying the same death as his Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. What has changed Peter? What has brought about this transformation in Peter? What has happened between the start of the book of Acts and scared Peter running away? The resurrection. See, for Peter, the resurrection changed everything. And it's the same for all of us this afternoon, folks. The resurrection has or can change everything. The resurrection is a historical fact, right? Jesus died and three days later he rose from the grave. And actually, as we all sit here, folks, we all have a sense that there must be something more than this. There must be something more than coming in here on a Sunday afternoon and going out and just engaging in the brokenness of the world and coming back in weary again and and just living a life where we see hopelessness all around us. Like some of us might not have that. Some of us might feel like life is good, like things are going well. But then we just need to look out and see the brokenness of the world around us and know there must be something more than this. When we look at the two years that we've just had and and the battle that all of us, all humanity have shared together, we look out and must think there must be something more than this. When we see acts of terrorism on our own soil, innocent people being taken out, we must think there is something more than this. When we feel just the weight and the struggle of our loved ones struggling with sickness, we find ourselves asking that question, there must be something more than this. truth is there is God has created us folks and he has created us to be with him that's what we were created for that is the place that we were created to flourish and right back at the start Adam and Eve our forefather and foremother on our behalf it wasn't that they sinned and we kind of were kind of stuck in their mess they sinned and we share we would have done exactly the same thing As they sinned, they separated humanity from God. And it was as if their sin, humanity's sin, shut the door on the presence of God with his people. It's kept us out of his presence. 
It's like the locks have been changed and we just can't come back in again to God's presence. And as we are outside of God's presence, that means that we are outside of a place of peace, outside of a place of pleasure, outside of a place of joy and satisfaction. Because God holds all the cards for those things because he created them. And we have tried all sorts of things. Humanity has tried all sorts of things to try and get those things back. And we hold on to things and hope in certain things, hoping that these things will bring us peace and joy and pleasure and satisfaction. And they never work. But Paul says to us this afternoon, the remedy for that, the place we need to put our hope, is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He tells us that the resurrection, folks, makes us new. Like as we're outside of the presence of God, it is not that... It's not that we, we, we kind of just need to get a new set of keys to get it. It's that we need new lives. If sin is keeping us out, we need to get rid of that sin. And, and it isn't as easy as kind of changing our clothes. It means we need to change who we are. We are sinful people. It's not just that we sin. And the only way that that can happen, the only way that we can be, become new people is to be made new. Peter says that is exactly what Jesus' resurrection brings us. He says, by the mercy of God, we have been born again in verse three into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the mercy of God, through nothing good that we have done, but because God is merciful, because he is gracious, he has called us into a a new life, a life where we are born again into a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. And it is that we are new people. I like to think of it as like a spiritual reset. Like if any of us have worked in offices or places where we have to work with computers, you know when you get that blue screen of death and you're just trying everything, nothing's working, you ring up IT and what do they tell you to do? Turn it off. No, I've got some work on there and I haven't said, the only way this is going to work, Sarah, is if you turn it off. Okay. You turn it off and what happens? It all works again. And you might have lost some work, you might have to kind of do things again, but it comes back on again. Folks, we need a spiritual reset. We need to be born again in order to be brought into the presence of God. And Peter says, you can be through the resurrection of Jesus. He has shown us, he has opened the door through his resurrection into a new life. And that life, he says, brings you a living hope. A living hope. Something we can hope in for all eternity. But not just in eternity. Here and now as well. Folks, if we're honest, every single one of us comes in this afternoon tired, weary, broken. Some of us suffering through illness, carrying guilt and shame because of sin. We don't just need a living hope over there in the future. We need something now, guys. And Peter says, you have it. The reason he calls it a living hope is because it's alive now, right? Like we have it now. It's not just stored up for us on a day to come. We have it now. It is here. It is alive. It is a hope that we hold on here and now as we wade through the chaos of life. 
He gives us three ways. We're just going to look at them briefly now. Three ways in which this living hope is real to us. Firstly, the living hope brings us a future promise. And then we see that our living hope is helpful and hopeful for us in the present adversity. And then we see finally that the living hope we have is, is a privilege. That we are a privileged people who hold on to this living hope. Firstly, the living hope that we have um, gives us the security of a future promise. You see in uh, verses four and five, Peter's talking about um, some sort of inheritance. And every time that you read inheritance in the Bible, if you've got a a Jewish background, uh, your mind is taken back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you see this word come up a lot, inheritance. And for God's people in the Old Testament, inheritance was all about a place. You've heard of Canaan in, in the Old Testament, the promised land. That was God's people's inheritance. He was taking them to a physical land, Canaan. And if you know something of the Exodus story, you know that God leads them out of slavery under Pharaoh. And they're supposed to walk straight to to the promised land. But they take this kind of roundabout trip because of their rebellion and their sin. But eventually they get there. They get to Canaan. They get to their inheritance. And they enter into it. And it's meant to be this picture of, of peace and joy and tranquility. And they mess it up. Their inheritance is destroyed as as enemies come in and ravage the land. Their inheritance is polluted by sin as the people rebel against God. And eventually their inheritance is removed from them as they are taken out of it and taken into exile. How does Peter describe the inheritance of those who are born again? Look down at verse 4. He says, our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled and unfading he's talking about our future with god in heaven in the new creation with god and it is so good did you see as peter can't actually find words to describe what it is and so he finds words to describe what it isn't it's that good he says it's imperishable unlike canaan where where it could be destroyed by enemies coming in he says your inheritance what is coming for you you who are born again it, it is something that can't be destroyed it's imperishable it's undefiled your inheritance that is coming to you is not polluted the, the place that we're heading towards if we are born again folks the new creation the new heavens and the new earth where we will be with god for all eternity that is a place where there is no sin That is a place where we won't have to lock our doors. That is a place where women can walk with no fear. That is a place where men will be honourable. That is a place where there will be no jails. That is a place where there will be no vaccines. That is a place where there will be no hospitals, no face masks, nothing like that. No no funeral parlours. There will be no suffering, no sin and no death. And that promise That is a promise that will be undefiled, Peter says. And finally, he says, it is unfading. Canaan was taken off God's people. Peter says, if you are born again, this promise is yours and nothing can undo it. He gives a beautiful picture of this kind of double guard. He says, it's it's for those who by God's power in verse five are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And before that, he says, it is being kept in heaven for you. Peter is saying, your inheritance that is coming, your future with God for all eternity in this place of peace cannot be taken from you. God is guarding it. God is guarding this promise. God is guarding heaven for you and he is guarding you for that promise. 
And so if you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, but you don't know what sin I've been engaged with. You don't know how much I've rebelled. Peter says God is guarding you for that promise. Not just guarding your future. He is guarding you. If you are born again, there is no sin. There is nothing that you can do to take away your inheritance. Because you're not guarding it. God is. Resurrection gives us hope through the promise of a secure future. The resurrection gives us hope now as well. It gives us hope in present adversity. We see that in verses 6 to 9. You see, we can look forward to that future inheritance. And, and Peter actually says, like, we take joy in that. He says in verse 6, in this you rejoice. We're going to rejoice together in a moment as we take this meal and we sing together. Like, we should take joy as we look to the future and see what is coming. But Peter is a realist. He's honest. In this you rejoice, verse 6, though for a little, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Anyone who's been a Christian for more than a minute knows that the Christian life is a life of trial, right? It's hard. Like, this isn't Disneyland. Like, we don't come into the Christian faith and everything's rosy and great. And pe- no, this is hard. Bible shows us and we know as we look at each other's lives that joy and grief are the melody of the Christian life and I know that I've sung that song with many of you this week even in suffering Peter says you can have a living hope firstly in our suffering it kind of heightens our awareness of our longing for hope In verse 6, he says, it's just for a little while. It's a little while you're going to experience these trials, but but there's going to be a long time where you won't. When I was younger, I was um, 15. I spent, I think it was about six weeks in London, and I just started dating Elizabeth. We were childhood sweethearts. I loved it. It was great. I had a great time in London, but I really missed Elizabeth. And in my uh, little dormitory, I'd uh, made a calendar with every day, and every day I came in and had to take off a day waiting to get back to, to Elizabeth. And I loved my time there, but I was longing to get home. I was homesick. There is a sense in which as we suffer, folks, we feel that. This isn't our home. The more we suffer, the more we are drawn to long for the day when we are with Jesus. The more we are drawn to long for Jesus. To let go of the things that we hope and put our hope in here. And to look forward to a day when we will be with him. Joy and grief are the melody of the Christian life. And also, our refrain is suffering now, glory later. We have hope and present adversity. And part of that hope is it heightens our awareness for longing for home. But also, when we suffer, our faith is strengthened. See, in verse 7, Peter uses this illustration of gold. And gold being refined, and that's what happens as we engage in the trials and the suffering of life. Like, you know, the process of, of gold being taken from uh, like a dirty nugget that's got all sorts of impurities in, and they put it in the fire and they put intense heat around it, and it, it brings out all the impurities, and you're left with the pure gold. That's what Peter's saying, like, the Christian life is like. Like, we suffer it, it feels like intense pressure on us, but God is doing something in that moment. He's refining us, and he says, your faith, like, think how precious gold is. He says, your faith is far more precious than gold. 
The work that God is doing us in refining us as we suffer is far more worthwhile, far more weighty than a lump of gold being refined. As we suffer, folks, our faith is being strengthened. God is at work. And I desperately want us to know and believe that this this afternoon, as you are suffering, as you are engaging in the brokenness of life, God has not forgotten you. There's a beautiful picture in Psalm 56, verse 8. If you are suffering this afternoon, if you are feeling the pain and the brokenness of this world, if you are born again, this is the promise that God has for you. Psalm 56, verse 8, David describes God's action towards you as this. He keeps your tears in a bottle. I know even in the life of our small church, many tears have been shed this week. And none of them have dropped to the ground without God seeing them and taking notice of them. He has not forgotten you. And he certainly hasn't left you. See, another beauty that we have as we suffer in this present adversity, another way that we have a living hope in this present adversity is that we get to fellowship with Jesus. Suffering now, glory later. Who does that remind you of? Jesus. As we suffer, we follow in his pattern and we are suffering as he suffered. As we suffer, it should lead our gaze towards Jesus. And Peter says something that feels, feels kind of like it shouldn't be true, but it is. He says that that leads us at the end of verse 8 to be able to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How can suffering, how can trials, how can pain lead us to joy? Well, because it makes us long more for home, because it's strengthening our faith, and because it draws us towards Jesus. Resurrection gives us hope for the promise of a secure future. It gives us hope in present adversity. And finally, it gives joy to a privileged people. That last little section, verse 10 to 12 of the passage there. I feel a little bit funny what's going on there, but there is great hope to be found in there. See, in the hopelessness of life and the brokenness of the world, as we contend with sin, sometimes we can find ourselves asking the question, God, do you even care? Like, are, you, are you interested in me? Are you, are you seeing what's going on? Are you here? Like, are you bothered about, about how hard this is? If you ever find yourself asking that question, if you are ever in doubt of whether God cares for you in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your suffering, if you are ever doubting whether God is interested in you, if you are born again, read these verses. Because what, is Pete, what Peter is saying is that for all of human history, right the way through the Old Testament, the most spiritual humans that have walked this earth, those who have walked closest to God, they would long to have what you have right now. He talks about the, those who came before the prophets. They searched and they inquired. They would have loved to, to have the reality of what we have now as those who are born again. They would have loved to have seen the, seen the finished work of the cross. They would have loved to have seen their risen Savior. They would have loved to have seen the day of Pentecost as God's Spirit is poured out on his people and we are filled. They would have loved to experience the unity of God's people as we are gathered here and he is present. But they couldn't. They had a sense of it, a longing for it, a knowledge that it was coming. 
So you think of Abraham, you think of Moses, you think of Isaiah. They would long to be here right now. They would long to have seen what we have seen and what our eyes have been opened to. They would long to know the message that has been preached to us, the gospel. Jesus has died for our sins and he has resurrected to bring us into a living hope, to make us to be people who are born again. And they just had a glimpse of it. They searched, they inquired about it. And not only that, did you get the last verse? Angels would long to know. Angels. Like so often in our world, in the culture we live in, we kind of put angels up here. Like we're just down here, God's up there, and angels are somewhere in between. No, we are higher than the angels. Because our eyes have seen the beauty and the glory of the gospel. And the picture that Peter is talking about there in the original language, it is as if there's like this window. And the angels are all like squeezing, cramming, trying to get in just to have a little look in at what we can see. They are desperate and longing to know and have a right envy of being able to know and live in the beauty of the gospel. Our right response, folks, to the truth that Jesus has risen from the grave and through his resurrection, he has brought us into having a living hope. Our right response, and you see it littered through this passage, is joy. We are the most privileged of people. More privileged than Abraham. More privileged than Moses. More privileged than all of those who have gone before. And our right response, Peter says, is joy. You see it right at the start of verse 3, before he even gets into it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ talks in verse 7 about the the end goal being praise and glory and honor in verse 8 we are to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory that is how we respond to the living hope which we have that's what we're going to do now we're going to stand and sing together Matthew's going to lead us as we sing rock of ages and then we're going to take this meal so usually what we would do is we share This meal is we would just spend a bit of time in confession and repentance. Andy's already kind of led us through a time of confession. And so we're just going to jump to the celebration. This meal isn't a memorial service, folks. This isn't a meal just thinking about a dead person. Jesus is alive. You know, you can go and you can visit Muhammad's bones. You can go and uh, take a day and go and see the Buddha's ashes. You go to the tomb and there's nothing there. And it hasn't been for 2,000 years. We take this as a celebration that our Saviour is risen from the grave. Mm. Because he is, we have a living hope. His spirit is here now. Able to help us in our suffering. Help us in our trial. Draw our gaze to the future promise. And help us now in this moment as a privileged people to hold tight to the truth of the gospel. We have been saved from our sins. We have been born again. We have a living hope. Right now and for all eternity.